Ephesians 5, starting at verse 15. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing her with washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Okay, let us pray and then wrestle with Ephesians chapter 5. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time that we share together now. And we pray that as we think about this passage, we might uh, learn some things and also uh, grow in our desire to serve you uh, with our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The uh, heading that uh, is in the introduction section of your bulletin, you'll notice, is the word taboos. Have you ever noticed that some topics are a bit taboo? The word means uh, off-limits or set-apart, something that's set-apart or forbidden. And it comes to our English language from the late 1700s uh, from none other than our very own Captain Cook. When he spent some time in the South Pacific, he was with the Tongan people. And in his experience, he'd uh, be around a campfire and he'd be offering different things to share with them to have, uh, perhaps to eat. And they would say, taboo, if it was uh, something that was off limits or something that they were forbidden to have. He writes of his experience, he says, when anything is forbidden to be eaten, or made to use, they say that it is taboo. And I think it's a good word too, it rolls off the tongue nicely. Uh, well, maybe today is one of those days where we approach, if you thought last week was tricky, uh, this week we approach another 
sort of tricky topic. And the idea of submission is raised in the passage. Uh, now, when I've been in church over the years, I've heard this passage preached and I've watched as um, when we get to the part about wives submitting to their husbands, I've seen husbands sort of give their wives a bit of a, a niggle. Uh, and then, of course, we keep getting a bit further in the passage and the wives start to follow suit as they nudge their husbands uh, in the appropriate section that applies to him. Well, taboo or not, uh, as Christians we need to be guided by God's word uh, and how he calls us to live as his people and how that uh, word impacts on how families are run as well. So let us come to terms with this word this morning. Now in the context, in the last section that Paul spoke about, uh, he wrote about the difference between an old way of life in the darkness and the new way of life as God's children living in the light. He's called them to kill off an indulgent way of life where they might have gone back to old ways and were, were living in sin without repentance. And he said, no, that's, that's the way that leads to destruction. And they're to be characterised by better things, much better things like truth, goodness and righteousness. Paul continues this section in the same vein as he writes, be very careful then how you live. And he continues to encourage his readers, it's a, probably a circular letter, uh, to think about the Christian way of life. Well, the first point is that God wants us to live wisely as his people. He wants us to live wise lives, not foolish lives. And in the first place, it's having the right attitude to time. Verse 15 says, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Well, Paul's conscious that there are two main ages. He talks about this present evil age, and he talks about an age to come when the times have reached their fulfilment. There are two main ages on view. And he's saying that now is the time to make the most of living God's way in this present evil age. The expression, make the most of every opportunity, is actually uh, the idea of redeeming the time. If you cast your minds back to the book of Daniel, when uh, one of the kings calls for an interpretation of his dream by his enchanters, they, they ask for a bit more time. They want to buy some time. And this word is taken from the marketplace. And it brings to mind somebody who's vigorously buying things up before they, they run out of time. Perhaps when uh, there's a long weekend, have you ever noticed that the supermarkets get a bit busier? People are in there, it's only a long weekend, they can't go shopping on a, on a Monday, and so they get all busy and buy things up. Or when there's some fuel supplies are limited, people go to the service stations and they, they fill up and you get big long queues. Well, he's saying... This is now the age to take the, make the most of living God's way, make the most of every opportunity and to live wisely for God. He continues in verse 17, saying, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Now the fool in Proverbs is careless. They lack understanding and they don't want to know anything about wisdom. They don't reflect on their life or God's world and how it's ordered. They lack wisdom in practical living. 
But Paul's saying the Christians shouldn't be like that. We've actually got the book of Proverbs too. We can read about how God's ordered world works and God calls us to a different kind of life, a wise life where we understand God's will. And God's will is not just about understanding his project or plan for salvation, how he's, he's uh, taken the initiative to save us through Christ and to bring us into glory and that's, that's his goal for us. That's a general, uh, his general will. There are also... Uh, specific things that we can do to live out his will and one of them some of them are spelt out below in this passage he wants us to live wisely not given to drunkenness and what it leads to in verse 18 if you're following along i'll read verse 18 do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery instead be filled with the spirit now the big problem with wine is that if you have too much of it you can get drunk and the problem with drunkenness is that it leads to debauchery. The word debauchery is uh, talking about recklessness, uh, a person who's not giving any thought to the consequences of their actions. Uh, they give themselves over to excess and it's the same word that uh, is used to describe the life of the prodigal son once he manages to get his inheritance early and then go and waste it in riotous living well god doesn't want us to live like that quite the opposite really we're called to be filled with the spirit or filled by the spirit which is quite different to the spirit that um, other people might have been getting drunk on in this passage God wants us to be changed by the Holy Spirit so that we become people who are more like Jesus. That's his goal for us. That's his will for us. God also wants us to live wisely as we speak to each other. Last sermon we talked about how there shouldn't be uh, coarse joking and that kind of thing. Instead, the challenge here is about speaking to one another singing making music giving thanks and submitting this is characterizing god's will for our lives in verse 19 to 21 i'll read out speak to one another with psalms hymns and spiritual songs sing and make music in your heart to the lord always giving thanks to god the father for everything in the name of our lord jesus christ submit to one another out of reverence for christ now, when we speak to one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, and when we're making music in our heart to the Lord, always giving thanks, there are two things that are really happening. One is on the horizontal level, if we can put it that way, where Christians are encouraging each other and we're teaching each other the good things about God from his word. That's one thing that's happening as we sing. The other is, if we could put it in a vertical sense, is that we're actually... Uh, not simply singing to each other like we might sing rock and roll songs we're actually singing to praise god that's the supreme being the supreme person who we're praising so we're we're making music in our hearts to god but we're also speaking these things to each other so there's two things that are happening now on friday i'm always intrigued sometimes by singing in christian groups on friday i went to a chaplaincy conference in sydney and i observed as they have the what they call their worship time the singing time that some of the people, probably quite a lot of them, including all of the musicians down the front, when they sing, they all sang with their 
eyes closed. Some of them with their hands in the air, which is fine. But uh, they had their eyes shut. And I took it that they're taking this as they're making music in their heart to the Lord. They've got this thing happening between God and them. But I think it seems to miss the fact that you can still do that in your bedroom at home with the door closed and you could make music in your heart to the Lord. But the difference is that we've all gathered together. Uh, the Christian life is a, is a corporate life and we've actually got another, uh, I guess, aspect of our singing and that is to encourage each other. So it's not simply make music in our heart to the Lord alone. It's also the idea that we're going to speak to one another uh, with these songs so we're, we're not so I, I always prefer it when uh, I go to those meetings and I'm seeing people who, with their eyes open they can encourage me and I'm hopefully encouraging them well God wants us to live wisely as his people Paul finishes this section by saying that we should give thanks to God in all things and then he calls on those who've been filled by God's spirit to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now the term submit literally means arrange under or place under. And in the Greek language it was used in contexts such as the military with the army where soldiers submitted themselves to someone in a superior rank. The Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew in certain parts, the word was used to refer to surrendering to God. It's the same idea. But here, Paul writes the term with a different nuance. Uh, this term is written in what's called the middle voice. And it gives a sense of subject oneself or submit oneself. Order oneself under, under say a leader. Submit oneself voluntarily. It's the idea of something, someone's acting upon themselves. It's like saying, I, I walk myself to get a drink. It's, this is the middle voices acting on oneself. And it's important to note this because uh, the middle voice emphasises the voluntary nature of submission. As Paul writes and challenges wives to be submissive to their husbands... He's writing to free and responsible agents and he's not about breaking their will to be submissive. Now some have taken verse 21 to mean that Christians have mutual submission to each other. This is also called uh, symmetrical submission where like you put your hand in the sand and make a handprint, well it's got the same print in the sand is what your hand is it's exactly the same and so they've interpreted this verse as saying uh, wives are to submit to their husbands and husbands are to submit to their wives in exactly the same way but the difficulty with that approach is that the same word is used where submission is to someone in authority over a person. Let me illustrate. I'll give you a few examples. When Jesus was uh, found by his parents in the temple, we're told that after he'd found them, he went off with them and he was submissive to his parents. The demons are described as subject to the disciples and citizens as being subject to governing authorities. 
the unseen powers are subject to Christ and the church is characterised as being submissive to Christ. In none of those relationships where the word is used is the situation reversed. Husbands are not told to be submissive to their wives and nor are parents told to submit to their children. The government is not told to be submissive to citizens and the demons, sorry, the disciples are not told to submit to demons. And so therefore when Paul writes submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, I take it that he's urging believers to be submissive to those who are in some form of authority over them as the flow of the passage goes on to show. And so a paraphrase of verse 21 could be submit to one another what is what what i mean is wives to husbands children to parents slaves to your masters which brings us to i suppose this is the the taboo part of the sermon if you like this word and this idea of submissiveness and it brings us to instructions for wives in verse 22 to 24 i'll read out verse 22 Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. <clears throat> well, the first thing to note is that Paul's not saying that uh, wives or women submit simply to any man, but it's specifically to their husbands. That's the first thing. Secondly, as it has been mentioned, the submissions in the middle voice, they're placing themselves voluntarily voluntarily under someone else's authority and importantly you'll notice later that husbands are not urged to rule over their wives Paul never says that husbands rule over your wives no that's not actually recorded for us but to love them now central to this call to submission is order God has established leadership and authority roles within families. We see this in the created order from Genesis, where woman is made as a helper suitable for man, and together they rule over God's cre good creation. But we also see a reversal of that order, where the creation in the form of the serpent starts to lead the woman, and then the woman leads the man. And when there is sin, we notice that who is called to an account? It's the man. He is called to an account for the state of affairs. His authority is bound up with his responsibility for the family and so he's supremely answerable for the family in that situation. And here in Ephesians, Paul's calling upon wives to recognise that order that God has created. But just because a wife is called upon to be submissive does not make her inferior. Theirs might be different roles and yet they're both made in the image of God and they both have dignity, which you can see in the following example. If there was a surf rescue and there were two people that needed to be saved and there was a husband and a wife and you were the one who was a good swimmer and you could rescue just one of them, who would it be, the husband or the wife? Well, it might just be the wife. You might think he can do the best and swim for himself. 
But the point is, uh, in terms of their function, they might be different. She's called to be submissive. But in terms of their being, they're both dignified and made in the image of God, and she's not inferior. You can't say she's less valuable or less dignified. Both are made in the image of God. The comment is made also that as to the Lord, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And that could be understood as meaning in the very process that the wife decides to submit to her husband, at the same time she's submitting to the Lord Jesus as well. And that's consistent with verse 21 that says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We're doing this because we want to serve the Lord. Now Paul continues by starting to raise the topic of headship in the church and in the family. In verse 23 he says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. The headship of the husband is grounded in created order, as we see from other New Testament passages and also from Genesis. But it's enough for Paul to state here that the husband is the head of the wife and he's already picked up on this idea of headship with respect to Jesus back in chapter 1 verse 22 when he talks about Christ who is the head over all things, over the whole cosmos, in particular evil dimensions. He's the head over all things for the church and it gives the idea of his authority, his supremacy over all things. But here the headship is being referred to with respect to the husband. And the idea is that he is the wife's leader. But it's critical to note that Christ's headship and leadership involved love and giving his life for the church. Now how does this headship apply in our situation, in our lives? Well you'll notice that to start with the headship and his leadership doesn't come with a whole string of rules that uh, are with it. There's no list that says he should take the garbage out, he should mow the lawn and her job is to make sure the, um, the meals are cooked and the meat's not too well done. Uh, there's no sort of list that's given about how this takes place. Instead, it seems that husband and wife work out together between themselves uh, the process of, of this, uh, this order that God's established. Now, in my own situation, it's always intriguing, isn't it, to pe- preach on a passage like this and, uh, you know, you, your credibility swings on how things go in your own life, doesn't it? So I, I thought about this, folks, before I came to preach this sermon, and uh, you'll be glad to know that I asked my wife last night, so, Joanne, do you respect my leadership, my role as the family leader? And, of course, Joanne looked at me as if I had two heads and said, yeah, of course I do. But um, I don't take leadership to be the same as tyranny. You can have dreadful leaders, tyrant leaders, uh, people like Saddam Hussein come to mind. I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind here for leadership. And so in leadership, husbands are not called to lord it over wives. But it seems that God's order and God's design is the best way to live as well as a consequence. When husbands and wife are cooperative, when they pull together and want the best for each other, 
God's model seems to work out well in practice. But there's certainly not just a list of how this will take shape. We've got a, a broad brushstroke model here for us. Now it's also worth noting that the text says submit to husbands in everything or all things. But we need to have a few reminders here about, um, I guess, complete statements. First of all, the apostles in Acts uh, speak to authorities over them and say, we must obey God rather than man. And so, although Paul's saying, submit to your husband in all things, it's, it seems to be their approach to marriage as one flesh that, that they'll serve together as the team where he's the leader. But wives mustn't be submissive in matters that are sinful or contrary to God's commands. Her responsibility is to serve God, obey God first. And if the guy's a crook, if he's a rotter and he wants her to participate in criminal activities, well then her responsibility is to serve God first and take a stand. But Paul's not discussing that particularly because he's not trying to undermine the approach that he's taking. Well, I think a key thing to take away from this part of the Bible is the voluntary nature of submission. It ought to be emphasised. And submission's not something that the husband can simply command. Uh, and Paul urges it, but doesn't command it in that way. God's design is for husband and wife to be one flesh and to serve the Lord together. And they're both under the headship of Christ who is over all things. Which now brings us to, uh, out of more taboo territory and to much sort of more fun things to grapple with, which is instructions for husbands. This is where the husband can get, start getting a, an elbow in the ribs. I'll pick it up in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife, sorry, he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Well, the me measure by which men are commanded to love their wives is the measure of Christ's love for the church. The church is cast in the image of a bride and Jesus is cast in the image of the groom. And Christ's love for his church is overwhelming. He willingly lays down his life for his people, the church. And then Paul takes this a little bit further and reinforces if that's not enough of an example of love, he goes on to say that husbands ought to love their wives in this way and also as they love their own bodies. 
he's reinforcing the point that the wife is to be loved, cared for and looked after. So if you want to find a better example than uh, Christ's love for the church as an example of love, you're, you're doing well, but this is the one where we've got to feel the weight of. That's the extent of his love. Now, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, this is uh, not a bad part of the Bible for us to consider as well because it reminds us if you're ever in doubt as to whether God loves loves you, we're told that he does. We can see it in history. He lays down his life for his people, for his church. He dies for their sin and rises again to give them new life. So we can see and we can be confident of God's love for us. The effects of Christ's love for the church result ultimately in the church being presented to God pure and blameless. Paul writes, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, which I take it means the church has been set apart, it's had a spiritual cleansing and it comes by means of the word being preached, the tradition of the gospel being passed on and people coming to hear about Jesus as Lord and putting their trust in him. And although there is sin still within the church, there is forgiveness and that will be seen on the last day when the church is holy and blameless when Jesus returns. The application point from Paul is that the marriage relationship ought to mirror that of Christ and the church. Paul's just said we're members of his body and he now makes the point that Christ and the church is unified. He's saying there's a profound mystery. It's when the two become one flesh, that's actually Christ and the church. There is unity there. And it's a loving relationship between Christ and the church. And when we think about that relationship between Christ and the church, that also reflects the love that husbands should have for their wives as well. A unified and loving relationship that's based on the husband's love for his wife. Well, the things that we've looked at may feel a bit close to home. As we look at God's approach to marriage, it perhaps doesn't square altogether that well with what we see in society. And it could possibly be somewhat confronting to uh, adopt this way of life. But it remains to be uh, God's word for us. And we're also confident of God and his goodness, that he actually has our good in mind, that he's designed the best way for us to live according to his order. And our responsibility is to rise to the ch challenge of being obedient to how God has called us to live. So let us pray now and ask God to help us to do that. Let us pray. Our Lord God, we thank you for the time that we've had this morning to think about this passage. We pray for the way in which we live as your people, not as unwise but as wise. Lord, we pray that you would help us to make the most of the opportunities we have to live as godly people in this age. We pray that you'd help us not to be uh, drunken and debauched. Uh, instead, Lord, uh, to be filled with your spirit and to be changed to be more like Jesus. And we pray for your help in that. 
Lord, we give you thanks that each week we can sing praises to you and make music in our hearts to you. But Lord, we also thank you that we can teach and encourage each other as Christians as we sing and praise you. And Lord, as we think about the, the order that you've created uh, for families, uh, we pray that you would help us to see uh, your goodness and your mercy in giving us that design. And we pray for families as wives seek to be submissive to their husbands and husbands seek to be very loving towards their wives. And Lord, we know that there are failures in this age that nothing is perfect, but Lord, we pray that you would help us to approach your model. Lord, we give you thanks for this time that we've had to reflect on these things now and we pray that we'd turn over a new leaf as we look at the ways we fall short and also as we think about how we could uh, do things differently. We pray for your help in that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.